Hi, this is Jeffrey Tucker, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You might also consider supporting this podcast by sharing it and even donating. LCI needs your help so it can continue creating great content. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and with me today is Norman Horn. And today we're going to talk about our Libertarian Christian core values. In the previous episode, which you may want to catch up on if you are just jumping in right now, but in the previous episode, we talked about uh, the Libertarian Christian Institute's mission, vision, and our core values. So we're not going to elaborate much on that here, except we just want to communicate that we want to be your go-to place for Christian libertarian case for a free society. And so our mission is to equip the church to promote a free society. And what we want people to be able to do is affirm a certain set of values that we believe that every Christian libertarian should believe. And so we're going to actually get into the first one today, and I'll just read it for you right now. Christian political philosophy should be informed by a holistic view of scripture, reason, and historical theology. So what we believe is that if you take a comprehensive view of the biblical narrative and you uh, see how the church's proclamation of Jesus is Lord, we believe that that's not just a personal statement of allegiance. Uh, what we also claim is that it is an anti-imperial declaration that the way of peace comes through Christ's countercultural kingdom of love and service doesn't come through force. Uh, we'll elaborate on this a little, a, a little bit here. We believe that followers of Christ are called to be a prophetic voice against the powers of domination and violence. It's not just enough to follow Christ. It also means that there is a role that every Christian should play in calling out against the powers that oppress. Uh, we believe that the state, which is the monopolized institution of force in society, is never to be confused with the kingdom of God. And that includes the, you know, the goals that each of them has. And when the power of the state grows, the rightful influence of churches, families, and local communities is actually diminished. So one of the first things that a lot of people would have a question about is, what does it mean to say that someone has a holistic view of Scripture? I mean, doesn't every Christian have a holistic view of Scripture? I think everyone wants to believe that they have a holistic view of Scripture. And for the most part, I think, you know, most Christians probably do when they approach a variety of different topics. Uh, but when it comes to the, the theology of civil government uh, that we have around us, I think that that actually kind of breaks down a little bit. Uh, for the most part, what I see so frequently in the in the Christian community overall is that when we talk about the nature of the state, people tend to appeal very quickly to a couple of soundbite ideas and texts in scripture that they kind of throw out there as being, well, this is the end of the story. And uh, those two, the two scriptures in particular, well, there might be three, the two that primarily come to mind are Romans 13 and Matthew 22, or the the uh, scriptures around that. So Romans 13 being the government is established by God passage, and then Matthew 22 is one of the render to Caesar 
uh, pericopes. And, you know, you'll see that also in, in a few other places in the, in the Gospels. Uh, there's a similar, there's also a similar thing, uh, you might even say, from Romans 13 and 1 Peter, uh, but we won't get into that too much. It doesn't tend to, be, to, uh, to come up as often. But those two little pieces, Matthew 22 and Romans 13, tend to be the end of the story for most people when it comes to how they view civil government. Yeah, and giving somebody the benefit of the doubt a little bit, you might say, well, that's the place that it seems like the Bible speaks more directly to the concept of government. And I think that's where people can often get in trouble. I mean, Norman, you and I are probably guilty of this, and we may not know it, or maybe we've corrected over over the years of our study of theology. We're all guilty of this, of understanding a passage in a certain way, not realizing the full context of it. So, you know, we're all we're all beholden to human nature uh, in, a, in a way here because, you know, it's it's not easy to interpret Scripture and kind of apply it directly. But, you know, the, the endeavor ought to be there to understand Romans 13 and other passages in the context of the broader Christian, uh, the broader Christian story and, of course, the biblical narrative. Yeah. And, you know, perhaps the, the thing that, that we could say here is that we all aspire to a holistic view of Scripture, even though we kind of internally should recognize that we're not there yet. If we had a perfect view of Scripture, of course, then well, we'd be perfect people, because uh, <laughs> we would understand we would understand what God would have to say in in, in, uh, in everything, you know, in the context of the of the biblical narrative. Uh, and that would be wonderful if we did, but we're not all there yet. But certainly, we aspire to this, and and especially in the limited uh, sense of what we're what we are in, the, in LCI are about, that is ex- explaining this philosophy of Christian libertarianism, you know, in the, in the broader context of our, of our greater Christian worldview, that's what we aspire to, most of all, is taking a holistic view of Scripture. We believe that, that essentially that approaching Romans 13 and Matthew 22 in a more isolated manner is probably a, a failure to really take in the whole of Scripture. There's so much more that to be looked at. Uh, and, and there's so much more that we should uh, that we should grasp from the outset before we even approach the establishment of, of, of the state in, in, you know, in kind of our anthropology and in, our, in sociology. Like, we really have to look beyond that and, and further back before we can kind of reach that. And, and that involves realizing what, you know, what is the standard for mankind about morality? What is the nature of violence itself in, in Scripture? And those are those are important topics, and they don't necessarily get as much airplay uh, in these discussions about the state as is warranted. And that actually kind of leads to why we also say not only do we want to see us use a holistic view of Scripture, why we need to incorporate in reason and historical theology into this, uh, because yeah, it's important to be able to just read the text of Scripture. You need to you need to know what's in it, and you need to be able to 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 kind of wrestle through it, if you will, independently. But we also don't come at it empty-handed as well. There is evident reason that we can draw upon, and historical theology that informs us about what the community of faith that has come before us has looked at Scripture and how, they, and how they've done that and how they've wrestled with similar issues uh, for, for good or for ill. We need to understand those things uh, as well in order to get a a better view of how to think about all this stuff because it's complicated. It's not as, it's not simple. There's no easy answer. 
And we especially don't want to get into positions where we end up proof texting or overemphasizing things that we shouldn't be or misunderstanding a historical context and thereby messing around with the way that we think about Scripture in the first place or about cultural and, and, and historical situations. We have to take in these, this kind of grander account uh, into our mind to synthesize this in a better way. And so that's, that's really what we're seeking to do here throughout all of our work at LCI and why we are trying to encapsulate this in, this, in our uh, core values here. So I can imagine that there are Christians out there who say, well, Scripture is all we need to determine what a Christian political philosophy is. And so if you want to have a the most consistent expression of Christian political thought, which is what we believe libertarianism is, all we need is Scripture. We don't. Why, why do we have to have a holistic view of Scripture, reason, and historical theology? Well, Doug, I think a lot of that comes down to the way that we consider epistemology itself, how we come to know what we know, <laughs> and to, to, to use a $3 word there. There's plenty of stuff in evident reason, in our observation of the universe and reflective thought about the way things are, that don't necessarily come directly from Scripture, but conform to it. You know, for instance, mathematics is not something you're going to get out of, out of Scripture. As my father-in-law loves to say, you know, like, scripture's not, uh, Scripture doesn't teach you to bake a cake. <laughs> right, right. And and so that, that's one of the things that you have to bring to the table here, that the understanding of political economy and, and, and evident reason as it flows from that uh, should inform us about certain things. And natural law is a major factor in how we understand uh, morality and legality and, and why these things work together. That is something that we have to come to the table with. And at this point, it's important to note that we're not trying, we're not engaging in eisegesis here. We're just trying to understand the world in a lot of different, from a lot of different angles and seeing touch points and, uh, and those connective, that connective tissue that binds it all together. Nobody would say that like, well, okay, you know, if I can't figure out that one plus one equals two from the Bible, then it can't be true or right, something to that Right, or we can't know for sure if it's true because know, it's yeah, not. Yeah, you can't know with yeah. certainty. Yeah. Yeah, and that, that's a good way of putting it. But we, so we don't go to the Scripture to learn calculus. And likewise, we don't go to the Scripture to learn everything we need to know about political economy. But what it does do, what Scripture does do, is that it gives us a narrative that wraps itself around the, the social and cultural and historical situations that we find ourselves in and help us to understand how they came to be and how a Christian should interact within it. And so when we understand from natural law, conforms to that which we learn from Scripture. Another question that came up when we were posting this on our Facebook group is, what does it mean, what do we mean when we talk, when we add historical theology? And this question of what does it mean to say, some people may not be familiar with the term. Most people are like, well, why add the qualifier historical in front of theology? Why not just write theology? Uh, what, are, what are we trying to communicate by saying historical theology as <laughs> part of the holistic view here? Well, that... that uh for the listener's sake, they'll know that like I kind of demanded that word be thrown in there, <laughs> for sure. And and but there's a good reason for it. Doing theology means that you are engaging with Christian history. That sort of comes from my educational background uh, in theology, I, I suppose. I think it's incredibly important to realize that you know when we go and approach the reading of Scripture, that we we come we are coming at it from our own point of view. Yes, but we're also you know, like we're, we're really indebted to our forebears in, in our faith, our Christian forefathers, if you will, 
uh, for how we understand it. If you're part of any denomination, your denomination has a history. Right. Uh, and that's and that's something to kind of to that you carry with you. And it's important to both realize that and also to embrace it. If you're for the same reason that, you, that hopefully, I mean, if you grew up with Christian parents, you know, bless them, uh, of course, and perhaps you didn't. And that's OK, too. But, you know, we respect those who've come before us, our parents, our grandparents in the faith. Uh, for for their wisdom and how they've wrestled with issues in the past. And, and you know what? Their parents did too, and the, their parents' parents, and so on and so forth. That is doing historical theology right there. It's important to recognize that. And, and I mean, th- this comes down to like a, some very basic values that we should hold as Christians, not just as, as Christian libertarians here, by the way. And we should just be active in understanding Theology happens in the context of the entirety of Christian history. Doing theology means that we understand it, our, our history uh, overall. I just think that's incredibly important. Let me, let me throw out something here. This is kind of a side note, but I, I think it's it's worthy of note that consider for a second, you know, almost anybody who's listening here, you know, whether you were a homeschool or you went to public school or a private school, you probably took, uh, especially in America, you probably took American history multiple times during the course of your uh, primary and secondary education, probably even as a college student, if you did that too. It wouldn't surprise me at all. But really, think about this for a second. How often do we go back and, and very specifically study our Christian history? Probably not all that often, unless you went to seminary or something to that effect. Or maybe you got, you were fortunate enough that, that uh, you were in a school that, that offered that, uh, whether primary, secondary, or in college. I don't know. But Consider that for a second, that we in the church who believe that the church is the most important human institution in the world over the last 2,000 years, and yet we don't care enough about its history to specifically study it, like that's kind of crazy. That would be kind of the equivalent of trying of understanding the meaning of the Constitution by only going to the Supreme Court's most recent ruling on any particular amendment. Yeah, it's actually that's a great analogy right there. Yeah, it's it's funny but true. Like it's it's important to know that the Commerce Clause was in, was was actually interpreted differently up until the 1910s, I believe, or 1920s, right. and then all of a sudden it changed. And oh wait, I wonder what factors made that change. That's that's doing uh, historical history. That's kind of a weird way of saying it, but is <laughs> 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 historical <laughs> historical American theology. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, it is part of the civil religion there. That's for sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but but I I think you kind of you kind of get the point though. Which yeah. is that it's kind of crazy to think about that we care so much about our country's history, but we don't care about the church's history oftentimes very much. And that was something. This is something that was really impressed upon me uh, when I was going through, you know, my my kind of quote my uh, graduate studies in theology. Overall, is that uh, it really dawned on me in my in my study of of uh, church history that like wow, by not having studied this, we're really missing out. So why why is that important here? Well, I think let, let's kind of do a vignette that illustrates why this is important. You know, the ancient Christians, those who are you know our earliest you know Christian forefathers, uh, sometimes called the early church fathers, uh, they really saw themselves as presenting an alternative kingdom to that of the kingdoms of the world. Uh, the proclamation of the kingdom of God was absolutely not. It was uh, the kingdom of Rome, and it wasn't trying to. Uh, overthrow it and then establish it in, in the way of power, but rather to to replace it in love, if you will. 
recognizing that the kingdom is not of this world and that the kingdoms of this world were false kingdoms, they were oppressive kingdoms, and that they, that they were only meant to pass away. They were absolutely not compatible. And, and it wasn't meant to be this kind of violent overthrow or whatever. That wasn't the point. Uh, but recognizing that the way of power, the way of Rome, was not the way of the cross. That was absolutely critical in their, in their way of thinking. They saw themselves as living in the system that was Rome and, and, uh, and some of those that were beyond. But they were really countercultural when you think about it. Uh, and in so many ways, whether that was in the proclamation that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is, and, and then, you know, the parenthetical that comes after that, that Caesar is not. Uh, and, and they recognized that this, that this thing called Rome uh, was not infinite. It was not immortal, uh, contra- contrary to the people of their time who, who believed that, you know, Rome was an everlasting empire. Um, and that this, it was going to pass away and it was going to ultimately, whether it was, uh, they didn't know because I mean that, that nobody knows the day or the hour, but they believed that the kingdoms of the world were passing away and giving rise to truly the kingdom of God come in full. They knew that the kingdom of God was right then. It was it was the, the philosophy or the theology of being already but not yet. Uh, but they they certainly realized that the that the kingdoms of the world were were uh, already passing away, uh, and it was just a matter it's just a matter of time. And really, that mentality really only changed centuries later with the rise of Constantine, and that where you see this kind of merger of throne and altar yet again, the church and the empire. That was a significant turning point, and we still feel the effects of that uh, in many respects. That's not a great thing. And so in many, res- in many respects, we are trying to hearken back to one of the earliest attitudes of the ancient Christians of our the disciples' way of thinking, or the apostles, the 12 apostles' way of thinking. And that's really important to kind of remember here. And when you kind of think, and when you think about it in that way, maybe it helps us to realize why our history is so important. Hey folks, Norman Horn here from LCI. Would you do us a quick favor and rank us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe to us? High rankings helps us get the word out there. And now let's get back to the show. For those who may be listening and say, well, all I need is scripture, you know, to kind of go back to that, let me let me give you a little bit of how I've worked through that, because I grew up in a faith tradition who would basically say we don't really need it's kind of nice to know the historical theology development, but that's not really important because it doesn't really matter what people believed 500, 600 1200 years ago, it doesn't really matter what that faith tradition came to in their councils and so forth. What matters is what does scripture say? And and I can imagine that there might be listeners saying, you know, kind of saying that, well, it doesn't really matter what those people thought. Yes, ultimately there is, is that like, well, what does the scripture teach? But it's impossible to actually ask that question, what does the scripture teach? without fil- having that filtered through the lens in the culture that we live in now. And so the at the very least, and I think it's important that we do comprehend and understand how the church's theology has developed over the centuries, but at the very least, it actually gives us a window into the the problems they faced and the conclusions and theologies that developed in the face of those problems. 
And so, for instance, you know, the penal substitutionary atonement theory developed at a certain time in history where there was where the penal code was prominent as a system of justice. That's not a coincidence. That's not to that's not to rip on any particular atonement theory. I'm just using it as an example. There's also the development of other theologies that happened at a certain time and in a certain place. Now, you may agree or disagree with whether those theologies are correct. And in fact, it might be helpful if, you, if you're kind of skeptical that you need to go over historical theology to understand where's, where has the church's position been on politics and so forth. But just the, the study of historical theology in general, if you're still a little bit skeptical, think of it this way. If you were to investigate all of the historical or theological developments that happen by the people that you don't think are correct in their theology, what do you think you would attribute to their incorrectness? It might be cultural circumstances in which you realize, oh, well, that's why they came up with that theology. Well, just apply that logic to your own cherished beliefs and think, oh, oh, well, okay, so they were dealing with a problem, and so they came up with these solutions that were theological, like affirmations of the Trinity, which you cannot find in Scripture. You find it in Scripture in one sense, but it was developed using theology and using using a historical context that, that said, we need to affirm this. And so if you're still skeptical of historical theology, I understand. I went years, I went through seminary not really wanting to do the church history classes. It was not until probably a Shame year or two. On you, dog. Yeah, Shame I know. on you. It was not until maybe <laughs> I just wasn't interested in it. I and and at the maybe it was at the time that I was very staunchly in a particular uh, tradition of faith that I was pretty confident was correct anyway. So I kind of had that attitude, but I've since learned that, man, I really did myself a disservice by not paying attention. And you know what? That's fine. If you didn't, <laughs> I look at it now like I don't really regret it on the one hand because now I can actually enjoy going back and doing that. And I actually it might it actually might stick, it might actually work. But anyway, I do understand for, for those who be like, oh, really? Church history? Do I have to really know that? No, you don't have to be going in depth or anything, but yeah, it well, is helpful to know the context. There's another, I mean, I think it's worthwhile to at least throw out here. It's like, I'm not saying that everybody needs to go out and grab the first church history textbook that you can, you know, that you can find. Although I highly recommend Justo Gonzalez, The Story of Christianity, uh, if you're really interested. But, you know, I'm not saying everybody needs to go do that. But what we shouldn't do is disparage it. We should just respect the fact that we come to our faith with a history. And that, that history includes our own life. It includes the lives of our parents and our grandparents, if they were people of faith, or even if they weren't sometimes, uh, that, that, that influences what, the way we think. We can't deny it. And that all of our Christian forebears, it's like it's, this, it's an iterative and, and, uh, and passed down thing. The, even the Bible itself you know, is, a, is a text that we receive from people who were diligent to translate it and understand it and pass it on to us. That's just, it's just important to realize it. I'm not saying that you need to go out and, you know, make sure that you've purchased all umpteen volumes of Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, as awesome as they may be, and read all of them. And then after you do that, you make sure you get, you know, every every volume of the ancient church fathers that, uh, that thus and such press publishes and go through every detail. That's not the point. Uh, the point is, though, is to re- recognize where, that we that our history matters, and that we shouldn't discount it. Right. We are not contextless 
faith. We are not contextless interpreters of the scripture. We are inheritors of a faith tradition with a very complicated and often nuanced interpretation set of skills. Yeah. And, and in fact, you know, like I've said this before on this podcast, I'm pretty sure that if, like, if you take, if all you get from us, from listening to us are little bits and pieces like this, and that helps you to grow in your faith, then by golly, we have done our job. Uh, I, I can't, I can't tell you how, how important that this is, uh, because, you know, our relationship with God is something that happens in the context of communities. And the community of faith is not just your local church or just your denomination or just the Christians that are in the United States of America or something like that. But we enter the, the, the family of faith is tremendous. What we should probably talk about next is that we want to kind of elaborate on what we mean by this and why we make this a statement. Like, why is this important? I mean, obviously, we want to sort of defend where we think our Christian political philosophy should come from. And we've kind of we've kind of obviously laid out the case that it's more than only scripture, only reason or only historical theology, which I guess in a way couldn't be done without scripture in and of itself. But as we as we kind of think about, well, where does this come from? We've, you know, Norman has gone through his journey. I've gone through my journey. We've got other people in part of our organization that have gone through their journeys. You listeners have gone through your journeys. You might be at different places. And along the way, you've come across ideas that are libertarian, and they may not have even come from scripture. They may have just come from uh, maybe Ayn Rand, um, who, who didn't even call herself a libertarian. They might have even come from a politician, some of which may or may not have been Christian. You know, I grew up in a Christian family. Norman did as well. And when we came across these ideas, there might have been some internal, I'll speak for myself, there might have been some internal tension as to, well, does is this does this work with my faith? Is this a view that is compatible with what I know the scripture to be saying? And so I've obviously fully agree that it's definitely compatible. And one of the reasons that I believe it's compatible is that when you read the scripture, I don't believe you can necessarily come to a full-blown libertarian view by only reading scripture, but because but you can go to the scripture and know certain things that are very libertarian in their, you know, sort of expression. So, for instance, we've kind of already said this at the very beginning, it's very obvious by reading scripture that God is on the side of people who are oppressed. Now, sometimes that takes the form of things like people who are in slavery, people who are being marginalized by the wealthy, people who are being taken advantage of by kings and other entities or or people who are taking advantage of those who are poor or of women or of other other uh, tribal groups. Sometimes it comes in in that form. Other times it just comes in the form of uh, God is on the side of those you know, just kind of like prophetic or proverbial things in the scripture that God is on the side of those who uh, are are being oppressed, like it's actually stated in, in those kinds of ways. So you can go to scripture to, to know exactly that. OK, so we can be kind of confident of that. The other thing you can go to scripture for is that those who are acting as mouthpieces of God always speak out when they're speaking of mouthpieces of God, they always speak out against the powers of domination and violence. And so whether, whether you could say that applies to modern governments or not, that that's another, that's where the historical theology comes in and that's where actually doing interpretation comes in. But the mouthpieces of God are against domination and control and violence. 
So there's a number of things, and obviously we can't go through all of these. I mean, this would be take a whole book, but the idea that you can go to Scripture and find certain things means that those things are found throughout the corpus of Scripture, not just one verse saying we should submit ourselves to a higher authority or pay, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Those things belong in the broader context of God is constantly bringing his people into submission of his values, not into submission of the state, is constantly calling people to be less oppressive, less violent, and calling them to be to walk in the way of Jesus, which was not simply about saying, oh, I want, you know, I want Jesus in my heart, so I'll have this afterlife guarantee, but to walk in the way of Jesus because that is the way of peace, and that is the way that we are to walk. So it's not simply about, oh, you know, my, my eternal afterlife condition. It's about how do we live today. That is also why we say that Jesus was political in the broad understanding of that term, not electoral politics per se, but that Jesus had many things to say. And the scripture led us to understand that Jesus was about more than just what do we personally get out of following him. It was about how does the world change? How does the violence stop? What what is Jesus doing? Jesus is doing a whole lot of things. But one thing that is very obvious is that Jesus's way was countercultural. It was subversive and it called into question the way of the state which was domination and of course founded in violence. So all of that to say and I don't want to I don't want to communicate that that was a comprehensive way of understanding the scripture and a libertarian foundation, but all that to say that there are things that you can go to scripture for, but all of those things that I just said doesn't doesn't render you a libertarian if you agreed with all those things. That is just an expression of where the scriptural support for libertarians, we would probably view ourselves as a prophetic voice against the powers of domination. If there was any prophet in the past 10 years telling the powers that they are dominating too much, it might be Ron Paul. He was a politician saying, we can't be not living, you know, we need to turn the other cheek. We need to live the way of Jesus in our foreign policy. Uh, That is calling into question that the state as an institution of force in society, of violence. And that is the kind of voice, that's just one example, he's not the only person, but that is one major example of what Christians are called to do. Instead of side with the state saying, oh, well, it's okay to be a little bit violent because it's for a good purpose. That's where, that's where we get too far afield. So allegiance isn't merely personal. We're to be prophetic against the powers. The, the idea here that is that we can get a lot of things from Scripture. We don't get everything from Scripture. That's where the reason and historical theology come in. It's probably worth mentioning here as well, you know, if, you, if you've read our little paragraph that follows the statement of our, of our core value number one there, uh, that we talk a little bit about, you know, the state as the monopolized institution of force in society is not to be confused with the kingdom of God. Uh, and I think it's probably worthwhile noting here, you know, what, what do we mean by the state? You know, first of all, yes, we call it this monopolized institution of force. One of the little bits of confusions that can kind of come out there, and so it's kind of worth talking about for a moment, uh, is kind of the difference between the state versus government or governance. I almost prefer the word governance because that makes it a little more open, if you will, to uh, different types of uh, of of ways of of setting limits and rules and in various respects. Some people think that you know, well. You know, okay, I kind of hear what you're saying here, but I just don't really like the you know this notion that we might not have the state as it is. Well, the fact is is that there's always going to be 
ways of organizing ourselves that can that put forward rules that uh, can help people to interact with one another on a more you know regular basis and, and make things interactions kind of smooth out. Uh, there's tons of ways to do that though without having the the state as kind of the uh, final authority and 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 the ultimate user user of violence in society. The problem is is not necessarily that there are rules. We we of course recognize that we have to have uh, various types of rules where when when we interact with one another. If we didn't have that, it just it really does become chaotic. Uh, but what we don't necessarily need is this kind of this monopoly institution that says here's the way things are and that's the only way things are. Uh, there's lots of ways in which we can do that without the this idea of statism where there is no appeal to authority at that point. That's, so that's the way that we want to explain that, is the, the difference between govern, governance and the state, if you will. Another thing to just uh, keep in mind is that we will actually be going over the concept of institutions in one of our future core values because we do believe the importance of institutions that are that are required for human flourishing. Uh, so you'll have to stay tuned for how we flesh that out and explain it. But that that is a good key point to remember that when you might hear a libertarian start sounding like an anarchist, what they don't mean is no government or no governance. What they might mean no is no rules at all. right or no rules at all. What they're saying is no monopoly institution that gets to decide for an incredible number of people. Here's the rules, uh, and so we'll 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 leave that for a future uh, for a future episode, which we we are we are we'll make that promise, and we are delivering on it. Uh, yeah. So uh, that'll be in another core value. Yeah, and to be fair as well, you know, there's this concept of. That you'll you'll hear sometimes in the libertarian communities that often call it minarchy or minarchism, and uh, to where it's it kind of envisions this night watchman style state that has very very little power and that all it does is protect property rights and and provide for a a very limited defense mechanism uh, against uh, against other forms of violence. And to be sure, if that's what we ended up being able to get, I mean certainly that's miles and miles better than what we have now and and thus we're you know we're we're aiming in the same direction yeah uh, all the time when we when we talk about this that's um, a little hopeful and romantic to only think that the government's going to end up with that yeah well yeah sure <laughs> but you know we're we're all aiming in the same direction in this respect so we we welcome that that kind of mentality as well uh, just recognizing that hopefully even the minarchist recognizes that there is the, the opportunity to have competition in, in the marketplace of ideas even for that uh, and in the marketplace for those, those minimalist defenses uh, as well. So I think there's, there's, there's a lot of overlap there uh, in, in all of these kind of you know, goals that we're looking toward of, of eliminating status, sadism uh, as the rule of society at this time. So we don't look at, at like that philosophy as being anathema we want to embrace that too in, in, in so many respects. Um, the key is that we oppose the, the, the evil that is statism. So with respect to the amount of time we have here, uh, I think we've explained our core value number one, which is Christian political philosophy should be informed by a holistic view of scripture, reason, and historical theology. 
And we're going to be coming out with a lot of material over the next com- over the next few months and maybe even possibly years that kind of elaborates on this in different from different angles. We have writers for uh, libertarianchristians.com that might have their own little spin on it. And so we we encourage you to write to us and tell us what you think about this episode and because we want to hear what you have to say. Um, we also want to want you to know that we want these core values to be something that you can embrace and we want to hear your feedback on it. So if you want to write to us, uh, you can do that podcast at libertarianchristians.com. So stay tuned for another episode, uh, which will go over the next core value, which is about non-aggression. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com. Thank you.